Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we're in Zechariah, and uh, Zechariah is actually a very popular name in the Bible. There's 29 Old Testament characters who share the same name, and they're not all the same person. The writer of the book of Zechariah, he's identified in the beginning, in the first chapter, as the son of Berechiah, the grandson of Edo, or Ido. And they were both priests from the tribe of Levi, so Zechariah was both a priest and called to be a prophet. Uh, he was born during the Babylonian captivity, and uh, at the end of Judah's 70 years in captivity, the Jews were finally allowed to go back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple. They had the blessing of the king of Persia that had conquered Babylon, and uh, it was just, everything was really good, so they were, they were allowed to go. They were given money and gold. They were, they were just totally blessed to go, but less than 50,000 took up the offer to return. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But those that did return, they were led by Zerubbabel, who was the governor. He was appointed the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. And so with all that going, and we talked about that when we were in the book of Haggai, they started the work of rebuilding. The first thing they did was they rebuilt the altar so that they could offer the burnt offerings to the Lord. And then they started laying the foundation of the temple, But it was around that point when they started to receive opposition from the people in the land. Um, They also received orders from the new king in Persia. Cyrus had died at that point, and a new king was in town. And uh, he was manipulated by the inhabitants around Jerusalem to write an order to, to, to command the Jews to stop the work of rebuilding. And so the Jews that were there, man, they lost their heart. To complete the work. Not only that, but they broke ranks with each other, and each one started working on their own home improvement projects. They started building their own homes. We talked about that again in, in the book of Haggai just prior to this. Well, about a dozen years later, in the sixth month of the second year of Darius, who was the king of the Medes and the Persians, the Lord raises up a prophet by the name of Haggai. And his ministry was mainly to stir the people up to get back to the work of rebuilding the temple. And Haggai prophesies, excuse me, Haggai prophesies to the people in Judah, encouraging them to return to that work. And less than a month after he gave his first prophecy or spoke to the people, the people responded in less than a month to the word of the Lord through Haggai, and they returned to the work of of laying the foundation of the temple. About a month later, the Lord again uses Haggai to encourage Zerubbabel and Joshua that the new temple that they're beginning to work on, even though it's just it's like nothing compared to Solomon's temple, because Solomon's temple was just splendid. Um, it was nothing when they looked at it. In fact, the older exiles that were alive, you know, they probably would have been in their 80s or 90s, that were alive when they first went into captivity. And when they saw the foundation of this new temple, they started weeping because they remembered the glory of, the, of, the, of Solomon's temple. But 
Haggai encourages them in saying that this new temple that they're building, yeah, it's, it's not as big and fancy, but it's going to have a greater glory than Solomon's temple. And at this point in Haggai's ministry, the Lord also raises up Zechariah. So they were contemporaries with each other. Zechariah, to prophesy to the people. Now, Haggai's prophetic ministry continued for a short while longer. Zechariah's ministry is going to continue for many more years. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, Zechariah's ministry, or excuse me, Haggai's ministry was mainly to stir up the people to begin begin rebuilding the temple. Zechariah's ministry was mainly to encourage the people in the work of rebuilding and also to reveal the future glory of the Messiah's reign in Jerusalem. And so Zechariah is kind of like the book of Revelation of the Old Testament. And so let's take a look here in Zechariah 1, verse 1. It says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, and we'll stop right there. It's interesting when you look at the names of these individuals. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. The name, his father's name, Berechiah, means Jehovah blesses. And his grandfather, Ido's name, means timely, or in other words, at the appointed time. And the very first thing that the Lord reveals to them, to the people of Judah, is that the Lord God remembers them. He knows what they're going on. The Lord God blesses them, and the Lord's blessings are timely, or they're, they're, they come at the right time. And so even just in the names of these individuals, God is encouraging his people. Beginning with verse 2, it says, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers... Where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us, according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So here in this beginning here of this chapter, the Lord is pleading with the people of Jerusalem to return to him And in return, he'll return to them. You know, so many times in the Old Testament scriptures, the Lord raises up prophets, basically pleading with his people to repent and return to him, and then he would respond in blessing them. In the New Testament, that whole theme continues. In the book of James, the brother, you know, James, the brother of Jesus, he repeats this message in his, in his epistle in James 4.8. One, one of the key verses that really drew me back to the Lord. James 4.8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. That, that's a timeless truth. Jesus also told the parable of the father. Remember the, the prodigal son that went off and spent his father's inheritance and, and he squandered it all. And then later on, he, he came to his senses. Man, I, I, I'll just go back to my father and I'll just be a servant in his house. And what was the father doing? The father was waiting at the edge of his property, watching for his son. And when his son came, he, man, he opened his arms and just received him back. That's been God's theme throughout the Bible to his people. If you just repent of your sins and return, man, I'll, I'll, I'll receive you back with open arms. 
But so often through Israel's history, what did they do, man? They disregarded the word of the Lord. They disregarded the word of the Lord sent by the prophets to them. And it came to the point that the, the word of the Lord overtook them. That's, what, that's the whole point of this passage here. The word of the Lord, it caught up to them. You know, his warnings, his promises to bless them were there, but also his warnings that if they didn't heed him, things would catch up to them, and, and they did. He reminds them that although their forefathers have come and gone, including the prophets, you know, the word of the Lord endures and transcends time. And the second thing the Lord reveals to them is that as his promise of blessing as well as warnings about the consequences of turning t- away from him, it applies to them as well. This morning, God's words to them, it applies to us as well. He says, if you return to me, I'll return to you. And, and, and if, you, if we walk away and we ignore the Lord, we're going to bear the consequences of those decisions. Well, restarting the work of the Lord would not, you know, they faced opposition when they went there. They had the Samaritans that were opposing them and other people groups that were there surrounding them that were coming against them. And, you know, now that they've made the decision to restart the work of the Lord, it's not like all of a sudden the opposition stopped. In fact, you read through their history, you read in the book of Nehemiah, they had continual opposition. It would still be hard. It wouldn't be easy. Um, the in, they would still encounter resistance. But in this whole passage that we just read, notice the phrase, the Lord of hosts, it occurs five times. It's almost like redundancy when you read it. The Lord, of course, it's Jehovah or Yahweh, the name by which God revealed himself to, to the children of Israel, but also the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of heaven's armies. And the third thing the Lord's revealing to them, the enemy and the task is going to be great. It's not going to be easy, but God is greater than any enemy or any task facing us. And so now starting in verse 7 and continuing all the way through chapter 6, which we're not going to get that far today, obviously, um, Zechariah relates eight visions that he received, and it seems like he got them all in one night. I, I don't know about you. I've had nights where I've had like a bad dream. I don't remember. You guys remember the Smyrna band? Some of you, some of you newer people don't remember the Smyrna band. We had a group of guys from South South Carolina, I think it was, and uh, they would come every couple years and they do they do concerts here. And three uh, three guys and uh, you know we came to they, they they were like family to us over time and and uh, one time I had they were here and I had a dream that night that the Smyrna band were pirates. And they kidnapped me and put me on a ship, you know, and I was like stuck with the Smyrna band on this ship. And it was, uh, you know, if you remember Ron Thompson, he was, he looked like Captain Hook kind of. I mean, he had that, he had that pirate look about him. But anyways, um, you know, sometimes you have bad dreams, you know, but it's usually like one a night, right? It's like one. If you remember it, it's like, I had this dream or this thing. Zachariah had eight well, they weren't just dreams, they were visions from the Lord, but he had eight of them in one night. I bet he didn't get a whole lot of sleep that night. Well, beginning in verse 7, it says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, And it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? 
So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. His first vision here is of a man on a red horse standing among the myrtle trees in a hollow. And in verse 11, that man is revealed to be not just any man, but the angel of the Lord. Whenever you come across the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's a term that's referring to the pre-incarnate appearance of, of God's Son, of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And so the angel of the Lord here is sitting on a red horse among the myrtle trees in a hollow. A hollow is like a ravine or a depression in the land. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about the, the color, the significance of the color later. But myrtle trees are a picture of God's people in the Bible. The Hebrew word for myrtle is the masculine noun hadas. And interestingly, the feminine form of the same noun is hadassah, which was Queen Esther's name, Hebrew's name, before it was changed to Esther. In Isaiah 55.13, the myrtle tree represents the nation of Israel in that passage of Scripture. In Isaiah 41, verse 19, as a picture of God's people, the myrtle tree, it says, is about to grow in the wilderness. God's going God's to bless his people, and they're going to multiply in, in a difficult and a dry, barren place. Well, here in a low place, you know, in this hollow, in this depression in the land, in the, among the myrtle trees, there's the Lord. He's sitting on a horse, and he's sending out riders on horses to go to and fro throughout the earth to report back to him. And what is their report? Hey, the earth is resting quietly. It almost sounds good, doesn't it? Hey, everything's at peace. Remember back in the book of Job? Satan is described as having returned from walking to and fro throughout the, throughout the earth, and he's observing mankind, the activities of mankind. Well, here God's angels are observing the activities of mankind. And uh, here in Zechariah, at the end of the Babylonian exile, the nations around Jerusalem are in a time of relative peace and prosperity, which sounds good. But the problem is the Lord's people, the Jews in Jerusalem, are in a very low and a very humbled place. And the fourth thing that the Lord is revealing to them, they may be, in fact, they are in a low place, but the Lord is sitting among them. The Lord is among them. Remember the guys, the rider on the horse among the myrtle trees. The Lord is there among his people, and the Lord knows and is aware of what they're going through. He knows. He's got angels reporting back to him about this activity. In Isaiah 43, verse 1, Isaiah says this, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. He never tells them you're not going to go through difficulties. You're not going to go through the flood. You're not going to go through the flame. But he says, when you go through there, I'm with you. I'm there among you. That's a very important thing for us to remember. 
You come to faith in Christ, it's not like all of a sudden everything's rosy, right? Your car still breaks down. You, you know, you, there's still things that happen in your life. People get sick and they get diseases and stuff. These things still happen to God's people. But we have the blessing of God's presence with us in those difficulties. Remember Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise you and I can stand on. In 2 Kings, and you don't need to turn there, but there's an interesting story in 2 Kings verse 6, uh, or excuse me, 2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha was the prophet at this time. And the king of Syria wanted to kill Elisha. He didn't like Elisha. And so he was chasing Elisha, trying to catch up to him. And he finds out that Elisha is hiding out in this city. And so he sends his entire army to surround the city. And Elisha's got this servant who he sees all the armies of the Syrians all around the city. And he's freaking out. I mean, it's like, well, it's up, you know. We're surrounded. There's no hope. And Elisha starts praying that the eyes of his serpent, or servant, not the serpent, <laughs> prays that the eyes of his servant would be open to see. And God opens his eyes. And what does he see? He sees the, the Syrian army, but behind them, he sees all these chariots, I mean, all the, the angelic hosts, basically, around them. And it's an important thing here, I think. You know, we don't see the angels and, and, and all the, the other activity, the angelic, the spiritual activity, but there are things all around us that we're not aware of in, with our eyes that we see. God's aware of what's going on. He knows what's going on. Verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which you were angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry and they helped, but with evil intent." If you look at verse 12 there, God the Son is pleading on behalf of God's people with God the Father. The fifth thing the Lord is revealing to them is that the angel of the Lord, God's Son, he's interceding for his people there in that verse, if you notice that. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus, our faithful high priest, always lives to make intercession for us who have come to God through him. Jesus is in heaven praying for you this morning. Praying for your faith. Praying that you stay strong. Praying that you would just continue. And when the angel of the Lord intercedes for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the Father responds with anger at the nations that are at ease with God's, while God's people are suffering. You know, at the end of it, by, by the time the tribulations come, you know, there's going to be this peace and this false peace and prosperity, but, it, but it's not a good thing. And here it's not a good thing. God has zeal for his people. You know, remember what the Bible says? If God is for us, man, who can be against us? God has zeal for his people that are going through this difficult time. Um, this, I think, is where the significance of the angel of the Lord sitting on the red horse comes in. Red horse symbolizes conflict and war. You can read that, you can see that in Revelation 6 4. And the Lord is angry with those nations that are at ease. They've been abusing God's people now, that they, and they're gloating over it. You see, in verse 15, 
These nations were used as tools by God to bring his people low, to punish his people. But rather than being humbled and fearing God, these nations that God used, they gloated over the suffering of God's people. And so now God is turning his wrath towards them, and the Lord is rising up to rectify that situation. Verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion, will again choose Jerusalem. And here the Lord's encouraging, you know, not only is the temple going to be built again, but the Lord in his mercy is going to rebuild all Jerusalem. And there's a word that shows up in here repeatedly, and it's the word again. Israel would again prosper. He would again comfort his people. He would again choose Jerusalem. That's an important concept because, you know, the Bible tells us that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Every morning they're new towards you and I. God, you know, they didn't deserve it, but God in his mercy, he's again coming to them. He's again restoring them. You know, by the time these prophecies are happening with Haggai and Zechariah, the people weren't seeking God. They were busy doing their own thing. They were busy building their own homes. And, you know, that life was just, they were just living life like the rest of the world around them. And it's the Lord that sent the prophets to them. Hey, come back to me. Come back to me. God does that in your and my life too. Well, verse 18 now begins the second of eight visions. Verse 18 says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? So he answered me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now in the Bible, horns are referring to the power and also the pride of nations. Well, who the four horns are, it's interesting. I was looking in the commentaries. Who are the four horns? Boy, you can get, if you had four commentaries, you probably have five opinions of who the horns are. Some think it's referring to the four Compass, post, compass points excuse me, surrounding Jerusalem. So they say the north would be the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the east would be the Moabites and the Ammonites, the south would be the Egyptians, and the west would be the Philipp- Philistines, not the Filipinos, the Philistines. Um, others think that this is prophetically referring to the world powers of Daniel 2, and that's kind of where I subscribe to. Um, two of the world powers had already existed at the time of Zechariah's vision, would be Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire, two more would rise to power in the future, be Greece and Rome. Um, and who they are, you know, it's whatever. What they have done is probably more important. It says each horn has scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Verse 20, it says, Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? So he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head, but the craftsmen are coming to terrify them to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. Now, who are the craftsmen? If, if, you, if, if we're struggling on who the horns are, who the craftsmen are, even that much more difficult. Um, but in the case of those horns representing world empires that we just talked about, the craftsmen could be referring to humans that God raised up to throw down those horns. Um, 
I'm going to struggle with his name, Nabopolassar. Some of you historians might say a real good, Nabopolassar, whatever. He was the father of Nebuchadnezzar. He overthrew Assyria, so he might be one of those craftsmen. Cyrus, we know, overthrew Babylon. Alexander the Great overthrew the Medes and the Persians, and then we get to the Roman Empire, and some people say it was Ptolemy, and some people say it was others. I I don't really know. I'm not really well-versed on the Roman Empire. Um, But the sixth thing that the Lord is revealing to them here is that God is in control each force or power that comes against God's people, he has a craftsman to terrify and to cast out that horn. You know, the Bible says in Isaiah fifty four seventeen, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Every horn, every power, every worldly thing that's, that's raised up from the enemy against you and I, we have a tool of the carpenter and craftsman to cast it out. What is that? It's the hammer. It's the word of God. You know, Satan tried several angles. He tried different things to, to defeat Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. And what did Jesus do every time? Every time he cast down Satan's attempt simply by standing on the word of God. Man, we have that same tool available to us this morning, the Word of God at our disposal. Let's continue on here into chapter 2. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what, its width, what is its width and what is its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, who said to him, Run, speak, to the, speak this to the young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Now what's interesting, there's only two other places in the Bible where someone is told to go out and measure Jerusalem. In Ezekiel 48, the length and the breadth of millennial Jerusalem is measured. In Revelation 21, the length and the breadth, but also the height of new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, that's, they're told, the angel's told to measure that as well. Well, here, Zechariah, I believe, is given a vision of Jerusalem uh, that's beyond Nehemiah's time. And he's talking about millennial Jerusalem. He says, The Lord will be a wall of fire all around her and the glory in her midst. Why? Well, because he is going to physically reign and rule from Jerusalem during the millennium. You know, we have all these presidents that come into power and all these candidates that say, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to have the solution for the Mideast. I'm going to bring peace. You know, I'm going to get these guys to sit down together and we're going to hammer out a peace process, a peace accord or whatever. It's never worked. It never will work because Jerusalem will never have peace until the Prince of Peace reigns from Jerusalem. It, it, if they even have anything, it'll be a false peace. Well, when Jesus physically reigns and rules from Jerusalem, you know, for thousands of years, Jerusalem hasn't had peace. But now they'll finally, for a thousand years, have that peace. Why? Because Jesus is reigning and ruling in their presence. In fact, Ezekiel forty-eight thirty-five tells us the name of the city will be from that point on, the Lord is here. 
or actually the Lord is there. So the seventh thing that the Lord is revealing to them here, you know, they're rebuilding this temple that's it's not a fancy thing. It's a lot smaller than Solomon's temple. It's not as glorious. But what they're doing now by rebuilding Jerusalem, their work is not in vain. Jerusalem is going to endure, and eventually it's going to be the place where he's going to dwell in and rule from for a thousand years. You know, this was the same message, basically, Haggai gave to the inhabitants of Jerusalem at about the same time. It's like, Lord, couldn't you have been more, you know, economical and just use one prophet and gave him one message? Why do you have two prophets giving the same message? Why the, why the repetition? Why? Well, the reason why is because you and I and they too need to be reminded about these things, these truths in Scripture. You know, sometimes we get so involved in the things that we're doing, it's so hard to see the long-term result of our work for the Lord now. The people that go back and teach our children in Sunday school, you know, some people say, well, I'm just going to go back there and babysit the kids, or I'm going to take care of so it's quiet in here for the adults. They're doing ministry If you want to get involved in ministry, that's one of the most important ministries to do in this church is to teach the children because that's the next generation of men and women. They're the ones that are going to be making decisions. When you and I are old and decrepit, they're the ones that are are going to be the, the next one that's going to be the voice in the hands of the Lord. So it's an important thing, but you know, in the middle of it, it's like, well, I'm just going to go back there and teach Sunday school, and uh, just man, I got to put up with these kids. You know, hopefully they don't have that attitude. But you know, it's so hard when you're in the middle of things. But what you don't realize is that there's a long-term result. There's a blessing in those things. It's important, and sometimes we lose our focus. Sometimes the things that you and I face now. It obscures eternity from our view. All we see is the problem we're facing, and we lose sight of eternity. So the Lord sends us reminders, hey, don't view things with the eyes of the flesh. View things with the eyes of faith. And that's what he's telling the children of Israel here, the children of Judah here. Hey, look beyond where you're at right now. There's a a reward coming. And you know, God's word has proven true. Jerusalem has endured, hasn't it, over the years? I mean, it's been inhabited from the Jew, uninhabited for a while from the Jews for a couple thousand years. But Jerusalem today, man, it's a thriving place. It has endured the test of time. In your and my generation, how many days goes by when you turn to your news, whatever news you read or you go to the, whatever on the internet or whatever, how many days go by and you do not hear about Jerusalem? seems like every day there's something going on in Jerusalem. In fact, Zechariah later is going to be talking about that in one, of his, in one of his prophecies here, but we'll get to that later. Verse 6. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them and they shall become spoiled for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Just a side note, it seems like verse 8, it seems to be the angel of the Lord speaking again. Well, 
going back to the Babylonian exile, you know, 70 years have passed, and only about 40,000, or less than 50,000 anyways, of them returned to Jerusalem. And if you were to ask the average Jew that remained in Babylon, hey, why are you still here? I bet you they'd give you all kinds of different reasons. You know, hey, I, I just got all these possessions. I, got, I, I don't want to give up these things that I've got. Or, or, you know, my wife is Babylonian, and, you know, her family's... If I, I don't want to take her away from her family. I've I, I got to stay here. Or, or maybe, you know, hey, who wants to be a pilgrim in a, in a land that's only got rocks and enemies all around you? Man, it's beautiful here in Babylon. It, it's, it's comfortable. I don't want to go and live in hardship. Or maybe it's, you know, I... Man, I'm afraid I might lose my life if I go out there. There's some people that, that really hate us over there. You know, maybe fear is keeping them back. Whatever, whatever their reason was, those who stayed behind in Babylon, they could no longer sing Psalm 137. What is Psalm 137? I'm going to read a portion to you. First six verses, actually. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive asked us of a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Singing, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Those Jews that were back in Babylon, they couldn't sing that song. They were longing for Babylon more than they were for Jerusalem. I wonder how many Christians today long for New Jerusalem. How many of us long for New Jerusalem? How many of us are just comfortable? Hey, I like it right now. I got a good life right now. I'm not that anxious for the Lord to return. Well, the Lord is calling them out of their fear. He's calling them out of their comfort zone. He's calling them away from their possessions or relationships. Whatever is tying them down in Babylon, he's calling them away. And then he tells them why, which is the eighth thing he wants to reveal to them. Why? Because they're the apple of his eye. And God loves them. In Deuteronomy 32.10, it says, He found him in a desert. It's speaking about Israel. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. The apple of your eye. You know, the eye is the one thing you really protect. I like what this one commentator said. What is so sensitive, so delicate, and easily injured as the apple of the eye? And against this apple of the eye of God, the nations and Christendom have sinned. See, not only did the, there's nations that hate Israel. In fact, anti-Semitism, you thought it ended with World War II. It's growing right now. Anti-Semitism. There's, you read about these acts that are occurring against Jews throughout the world. Synagogues are being vandalized and you know, graves desecrated. Anti-Semitism is growing worldwide, but the church itself, people who claim the name of Christ, there's groups that have, you know, they're, they're voting to divest from Israel. Uh, we don't want to invest with those, you know, because they're, they're mistreating the Palestinians, and, they're, you know, they're, and, and it all comes back to replacement theology, where there are Christians that believe that the church has replaced Israel as far as the blessings of God and the promises of God. 
They're the apple of his eye. You know, the sheep and goat judgment at the end of the Great Tribulation, we're going to be getting to it pretty soon on Wednesday night in Matthew 25. That judgment will be based on how the nations treated the apple of God's eye during the Great Tribulation. God cares for his people. And if God's love and care for the Jews has continued down through the ages, I mean, think about it. You know, how many Hittites do you know? How many Amorites? There's nations, there's cultures that have vanished from the face of the earth. But the Jew has survived. They're survived. They have their own, they still have the shekel. They have their own culture. They have their own language. They, I mean, they have so much of their identity intact. It's a miracle that they're, that they're back in the land like they are. Well, if God was faithful to keep them around and to bless them and, and for them to endure, how much more should you and I trust in his promises too, to you and I? In fact, Paul in Romans talks a lot about that. In Romans eleven twelve, he's talking about the Jews. And he says, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? You know, at a point in, in, in uh, the book of Acts, the, the people, they, they re- the Jews, they rejected the gospel message. And so Paul went to the Gentiles. And as that, the Gentile church just exploded. And for you and I, who there may be some Jews here, but for most of us who are Gentiles, it's been a blessing that they rejected the gospel, believe it or not. It's, it's been a blessing for us because the gospel came to us, and now we're part, we're grafted into the, to the, to the family of God. But if their rejection resulted in a blessing for us, how much more will their returning to the Lord be that much more blessing for us? And that's what Paul is, is referring to. Well, how much more should you and I trust in the promises of God? If he's been faithful to them, he's going to be faithful to you and I as well. Verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst, then you shall know, you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. In that day, what day is he talking about? That's the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. There's, there's a lot of prophecies to talk about the, how the nations are going to come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord when he reigns and rules from Jerusalem. Verse 13, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is arose, aroused from his holy habitation. Be silent before the Lord. You know, sometimes when you're worshiping the Lord, sometimes we just need to stop our mouths we need to just quiet our hearts and just worship the Lord in silence. Just to, just to sit in silence before the Lord. It's an awkward thing, by the way. We, we do that sometimes. We have an afterglow service and it gets real quiet. It's a, you know, a prayer service and it's, it's silent. Sometimes it's like, if, if you're not comfortable, it, it can feel really like, oh, this is, kind of, this is kind of awkward. But, you know, there are times to be silent before the Lord. And right now in this passage, in this prophecy here, it's time for the nations and for everybody just to be quiet because the Lord is rising up. You know, when you go into a courtroom, you don't, like, you're talking and you're waiting for the judge to come in. When the judge comes in, you don't keep your conversation going. I mean, everyone's attention is, is, is okay. The judge is, getting, is coming in. Everybody rise. 
I was in court once and I was chewing gum. And the ju- uh, you can't even chew gum in a courtroom. Judges, well, some might not care, but this judge cared. He's like, if you're chewing gum, you better spit it out. And I'm like, trying to swallow this gum, you know. I'm like, I wasn't in court for myself. My son had too many speeding tickets, and it's not Luke. It was a different one. And so anyways, that's, that's a long story. But uh, anyways, um, I had to go there and represent him because he was underage. Uh, but that's that same picture. The judge is coming in. Man, it's time, to, it's time to give him our attention and our worship. And that's what this passage is saying. Be silent because the Lord is aroused from his ha- holy habitation. Well, what does that mean? You know what it, what it means? Depends on who you are. You see, if you're an enemy of God's people, um, if you're one of the enemies of God's people who are at rest, the Lord is rising up. That means wrath and terror. It's bad news for you. But if you are one of God's people, if you have a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ, um, if you're one who's been oppressed by wickedness, man, when God rises up from his holy habitation, man, that means deliverance and joy because the Lord has intervened now. And so the last thing uh, that we're going to look at this morning, the Lord is revealing to his people is that he's about to act on their behalf. And so all of this was meant to encourage the children of Israel in the work that they're to do. And, you know, for you and I this morning, I want to encourage you, you know, these promises. God has been faithful to keep his word, the, the word of the Lord, the promises to bless them. He's been faithful to bless them, but also his warnings. If you turn away from me, these are the consequences. His word is faithful both ways for us. And so I want to encourage you this morning, the things that, I mean, let's not stay in Babylon. Let's not keep our focus on Babylon. Let's, let's get to the work of the Lord, because that's, I think that's the message for you and I here this morning. And so why don't you stand up, let's go to the Lord and just uh, ask his, uh, we'll just respond in prayer to, to the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. To the children of Israel, Lord, your faithfulness after 70 years to bring them back into the land. Lord, your mercy upon them. Lord, you protected them in the face of their enemies and the threats all around them as they were doing the work of the Lord. And Father, even after 2,000 years, Lord, you've been faithful to return Israel to the land once more. And Lord, as we've seen the regathering of Jews into the Holy Land, and Lord, we've seen how the nations are starting to increase. Even our own government is, is seemingly turning its back on Israel, Lord. We know that your word says that in the last days, no one will stand with Israel, but you will, Lord God. And so, Father, I just, as we see that day approaching, Father, I pray even this morning, Lord, that we would start looking up because our redemption draws nigh. Lord, I pray that we would look up because you're returning for your church soon. And I I just pray that, Lord, we would look with the eyes of faith and not with the eyes of flesh, Lord, and that we would realize that the things that we do for your kingdom are the only things that are going to last, Lord. Everything else that we focus our energy on, everything else that we expend our our resources on, Lord, those are all temporary and they're going to be gone, Lord. But the things that we do for you are those that will last. So I thank you for those reminders this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing on your people, and we bless you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.